So good morning, Cross Point Church. I want to say this. If you're visiting with us, I want to say a hearty welcome. We're thrilled you're here. Our prayer every week is that you would be welcomed well and fed well. So I hope you've already met some people here and you've been welcomed well. If not, welcome. There you go. You got welcomed. Let us go to Philippians chapter 1. So if you're not there yet, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We are continuing on our journey through Philippians. If I could just say this, um, I love this. I absolutely love what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. Taking a book of the scriptures and just walking through it together. Coming to the scriptures, opening up our hearts, saying, God, what do you have to teach us today from your word? To be able to go on this journey with a church 2,000 years ago in Philippi, and by God's holy, through the Holy Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul, penning these words to a real church. And now we're on a journey with this church in Philippi. A lot of times I like to actually envision this in my mind as I'm studying or preaching, that you are not Cross Point Community Church in Reading. You are the church of Jesus Christ in Philippi. We're Philippi. These chairs will look a little bit different. I know they're purple. That's possible because we have Lydia, the seller of purple, in our church in Philippi. But I tell you what, this is a real congregation that we're reading about. This is a real time in real history. So I just wanted to say thank you for being here. Thank you for receiving the word. We have interacted with this concept as we've gone through chapter 1 of Philippians what does it mean to be gospel-centered? To center our lives on the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, meaning this, Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins, his victorious resurrection from the grave provides new life for you and for me. Not just new life as in justification, but sanctification as in new life for you today and tomorrow and the next day. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient not just to get us into a relationship with God, but to grow us in our relationship with God. That's what we're studying about. So the, the concept is this. Every week we're compelled to ask this question. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ radically transformed everything in my life? Everything I, I think, everything I say, everything I do, everywhere I go, everyone I interact with. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ changed my perspective of my entire day? Everything I do. Well, so far, and actually if you turn your handout over, you can see kind of a review section because we're getting deep into it here. We've talked about how the gospel of Jesus Christ compels meaningful relationships, verses 1 and 2. It encourages an attitude of gratitude, verses 3 through 8. It empowers overflowing love, verses 9 through 11. It transforms our suffering. A gospel-centered life transforms suffering into opportunities to proclaim Jesus Christ. Verses 15 through 18. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us empowerment, the ability. It compels us 
to have selfless rejoicing, that life doesn't revolve around me. It's about Jesus Christ. Now today, we're going to walk through this other section and this concept of resolve. What do we mean when we talk of resolve? What other words come to your mind when we talk of this word resolve? Uh, you know, last night I brought this up to my kids, and they're talking more in terms of conflict resolve, resolution. So that comes to our mind. Does it, does it come to your mind? Where something's resolved, something's worked out. At an end of a song, a lot of times you'll have a resolve where all the keys are worked out, everything's worked out, and you're done with the song. It's resolved. That's not necessarily what we're talking about here, though. This resolve is the resolve of determination, confidence. The resolve that we're talking about today is the resolve of conviction. It is being convinced of something. Um, last night, I have to mention this. We were talking about this, and I, I said, kids, what, is, what does resolve mean? And Eva, although close, you can kind of go back, sorry. Although close, she says this. She says, uh, the world does not resolve around me. <laughs> and, I, and I just said, well, you know, maybe. It's amazing what one little letter V has to say, right? Her, in her mind, she hears it over and over again. Thanks so much, Kevin. In her mind, she thinks, because she hears it all the time, you know, Eva, the world doesn't revolve around you. And so in her mind, she says, the world doesn't resolve around me. But then in my mind, I'm thinking, well, yeah, that is, that's kind of right. The world isn't figured out just based on you. But when we talk about this resolve, we're talking about this determination. So in my mind, if you haven't noticed already, when I start off a theme or a passage, I like to look at pictures. Pictures worth a thousand words, right? So I like to, in our mind, identify with different themes. I love history, um, and, and I love different time periods through history. When I think of resolve, in my mind, I think back to these guys, the Battle of Thermopylae. I love thinking about Leonidas, 480 B.C., standing strong. The 300 Spartans. That story through history, just, I love that story. But then more practically, I love here. American history. Last, last year, we took uh, an American history tour with our kids, and we went to the East Coast, and we got to visit different places. We went to one place. I don't know if anybody can identify this. Does anybody know where this is? The picture? Someone just said it. Surprise. Great. All right, because normally you think of Bunker Hill, there's another painting that comes up, but this is the Battle of Bunker, Bunker Hill, right outside of, right outside of Boston. I love the story of Bunker Hill. I mean, starting off the American Revolution, but we're not going to talk about Bunker Hill today. But where's this? Oh, I love this story. George Washington crossing the Delaware on Christmas night. This is phenomenal. So I look at George Washington, I'm thinking, this guy, resolve, written all over his body in this rendition, this painting. Here's another one. I have this one up in my office. Reminded me often. Where's this? Valley Forge. One of the toughest times for the Continental Army, the winter 1777 into 1778. And I remind myself often, it's on the wall, my desk is here, it's on my far wall, that even through tough times, lead by your knees, praying, the resolve of George Washington. 
I think about other ones. What about this one? The Battle of the Alamo. Anybody been to San Antonio? 100 Texans standing up against, like I think it was 1,500 of the army of Mexico. They stood strong. The resolve, I used to love that story because one of my favorite figures in all of history, just like any, you know, elementary school boy, usually, maybe Davy Crockett, running around with my coonskin hat, died in the Alamo. One of the highlights of my life was to go to the Alamo and visit the Alamo and to see a lock of his hair and that Betsy gun. But I think of Dave Crockett, I think of the Alamo, the stand, the resolve of the Alamo. Anybody recognize this? Who is this lady? More recent history, Rosa Parks, 1955, Montgomery, Alabama. Her resolve, maybe history's not your thing, so maybe you can identify more with this fella. All right. What yells out resolve in American movie history than the dude on the screen, Rocky Balboa? And his resolve with, Adrian! You know, we showed our kids this classic recently, and they're looking at this thing. I'm like, and they, they liked it. And, and uh, it just blew their mind, this guy. He's all bloodied up and stuff like that, and he fights again. And somehow he stands up again. When I think about resolve, I think about this guy. Um, maybe it's in a very practical way. Maybe this is the resolve that you live in, what, what we're talking about. We're talking about Black Friday, all right? Mama Bear, Mama Bear finding that toy at 5 a.m., camping outside of the Target to get in there and get her done. Finding that toy, that's resolve, that's determination. All those coupons you've saved all year, Black Friday, they're pretty much throwing toys at you, all right? Or maybe it's just, okay, this is once, in a, once a year, Black Friday. Maybe it's getting your kid up into the school on, on, on any given morning. All right, our kids are down on Deschutes and Old 44, to school, two of them, and I drive there, our two oldest, to school, and I come back, and we try to beat the traffic, get them there earlier, but I'm telling you, the look in those moms' eyes as they're taking those curves on old 44 blows my mind. They are in it to win it. They're getting there. Um, their coffee is coming out of their eyeballs. <laughs> there is resolve that abounds in their lives. Uh, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the sixth grader here. And the last piece of pizza at the party. Throwdown's coming for that last piece of pizza. I mean, resolve in a very practical way. I think about this in my life. Can you identify what's happening here? Okay, I have an amazing gag reflex. Just like this dad trying to change his diaper. This is a reality, so so many dads in this room, maybe even grandpas in this room, when you got to change that stinky and your wife is not there, it is a work of God's amazing grace. <laughs> I, I remember for, like, when, when we first had Kara, sorry, Kara, <laughs> dad, all right. We first had Kara, and this little precious baby. It's like, how did that come out of you? And, how, and Hannah's gone. And like, eyeballs just, just soaked with tears and up, the, the whole nine yards. 
it took resolve. I mean, so much that I put a couple of these guys on. This <laughs> is where I lived until I saw this amazing. This guy's got it right over his nose. What are we talking about? All right, enough of the frivolities, right? But in a very practical way, we interact with this concept of resolve every day of our lives. And I'm going to say for biblical Christianity, this is especially something important to us. Talking last night with the kids of people in biblical history that lived with an amazing resolve. Last week in our devotion time, we talked about Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, where you can change my location, you can change my name, you can try to change my food, but you will not change my God. This is the resolve of Daniel, the resolve of Gideon. David before Goliath, not just sneaking up to Goliath, but running towards Goliath after he announces, isn't there a cause? This is the biblical concept of resolve. I mean, I, all the way through there, Deborah, Barak, I love that story. We talked a little of that last night. Carries us into the New Testament, and the height of any kind of discussion on resolve is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then from Jesus Christ comes the resolve of one Stephen, stoned for his faith in Jesus Christ. We think of Peter, who kind of had some rocky ground at the beginning, but as you look through his life, crucified upside down, tradition says, and we don't know exactly if this happened, but tradition says that before he was crucified upside down, he watched his wife crucified. I mean, that ripped my heart out. This is the resolve of the scriptures. When we think about our Christian life, there's an, a, a massive element of resolve involved in the discussion. Resolved to live for Jesus today. There's another fellow by the name of the Apostle Paul. This man lived with an amazing resolve. We looked at his life. We've seen different highlights of his life in this journey through Philippians. But we see more of it today. When I look at this passage that we're studying today, Philippians chapter 1, 19 and 21, I see an example of resolve. And I want to start off by saying this from the onset. To stay consistent with what Paul says here in the book of Philippi, uh, Philippians to the church of Philippi. In no way do we take Paul's words here and put him up on a pedestal. In fact, he says to the church of Corinth, only follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. We follow Paul's example only as he follows the example of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, we look at a passage here where Paul is consumed with the resolve to live for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to take this week and next week and look at this resolve. But if you would open your Bibles, if you're not there yet, I, I mean, I gave you 25 minutes to get there, I think. <laughs> so if you would look at verse 19, it says this. Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame or be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Two basic snapshots that we're going to take of the Apostle Paul's life today. One is this, verse 19. A gospel-centered life lives with a resolve to keep trusting God. I intentionally put in there that word keep to be consistent with the text. Because in our minds we could think a gospel-centered life trusts in God. Kind of like check, I did it. But a gospel-centered life trusts and trusts and keeps trusting and trusts. Even when they can't get out of bed, we're trusting God for the next step of our lives. And then we'll look at this today. Gospel-centered life lives with the resolve to magnify Christ. Let's start with this first one. Gospel-centered life lives with a resolve to keep trusting God. If you would follow along with me again in the text, verses 19 and 20. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. What is this? This is an amazing confidence that God is at work in Paul's life. Paul is just writing it out in pen through the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there's an amazing confidence that God's not done yet. In our minds, do we go back to verse 6? Being confident of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you, he will complete it. He'll perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. Now we see a very real example of that in the Apostle Paul's life. Let's just take this verse, and one phrase at a time, let's analyze this verse and come up with a theme for the passage, starting with this one. For I know. Another way you could say this would be this. I am assured of it. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, I am convinced. I am confident. So there's a couple different words in the Greek New Testament for know. One of them would be the word, it sounds like, that the teens learned at camp. Uh, when it talks about experience, experiential knowledge, epigenosis, that's not this word. This is another word uh, in, in the Greek New Testament, oida, which means to know, to be assured in your mind. You know it's going to happen. I know they're interchangeable in Paul's writings, very similar, but Paul says, I am convinced in my mind, I know this will happen, for I know, and here we go, continue on in the passage, that through your prayers... Paul has just told the church in verses 9 through 11 that he's praying for them. And I love this. Because now he's saying, and I know you're praying for me. He is complimenting them for their prayers. I'm praying for you that your love would abound. And you're praying for me through all of my struggles. Thank you. The key clue here is this. God uses the prayers of the saints in his sovereign plan. I think we need to wrap ourselves around that concept. Some people get hung up in, how do you pray to a sovereign God? And maybe you've gone through that in your mind. Well, somehow, God, in all of his sovereignty, chooses to use the prayers of the saints. And Paul acknowledges that here. Pray. You've prayed for me. It's a massive clue about prayer. Here's another key clue is this. God's people are necessary in the sanctification process of God's people. There were people in Philippi that knew Paul and were praying for him that God would grow him and God would deliver him. And I'm going to tell you, there's people in this room, whether you knew it or not, that prayed for you this week. There's people that love you and are praying for you. So the challenge is sort of this. Do you take the baton and pray for other people sitting around you? 
God delights in the prayer of the saints. Let's continue on through the passage. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So how does all of this resolve happen? Because in our minds, if you talk about resolve, it can become very man-centered, can it not? I mean, the American dream. I mean, the American man. He can even go back in history. The Renaissance man. He does all of this stuff. So we're talking about resolve. A lot of times it's all about, yeah, you can get her done. We've talked about that before. But when you look at the scripture, it's very clear that this resolve is not going to happen if it's not through the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, in the help of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the support of the divine comforter that Jesus Christ himself promised prior to going to the cross. This is simply proving the confidence that the Apostle Paul had in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's highlighted in even the phrase, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. As you go through the New Testament, a lot of times when when the Holy Spirit of God is referred to, it's referred to as the Spirit of God. Here we find in perfect synchronization the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is used in a couple other passages, Romans 8 and 9, Galatians 6, 4, or 4, 6, sorry. Very practically, how does Christ dwell in the believer? How does Christ work in the believer? Inseparable from the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that permanently indwells you. If you've come to Jesus by grace through faith, that Holy Spirit indwells you. The divine comforter, comforter has come into your life and will never leave you. He doesn't leak out the bottom of your shoe. He has you and he will never let you go. And Paul says, how is this all going to happen? It's going to happen through the Holy Spirit. Let's continue on. Paul says, this will turn out for my deliverance. This, speaking of Paul's scarring, Paul's struggles. He's in jail. He's in prison. I mean, his circumstances, very practically, his impending death. He knows he's going to die. This is very likely going to happen, potentially within one or two days. So when you look at that, I honestly don't believe, and there's a couple different ways you can take that deliverance, that God will deliver me. Some people say Paul had amazing confidence in his deliverance from jail. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about, because very clearly in the context here, he says, I'm going to die. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He's talking about death in this passage. I honestly don't even think he's talking about being delivered from his trial. Because a lot of times when we talk about deliverance, it's like, God, please relieve me from this trial. I don't think that's what he's saying. What is he saying here? I honestly believe he's saying that you would deliver me from dropping the ball spiritually. God, you've given me this task and that I would see it through to the end. I think that's what Paul's saying here. That God, you would give me the grace to handle the suffering to handle the death that I know is going to happen. That death, I mean, the way that they talk of Paul dying is astounding. I mean, the martyrdom that he went through, and I think that's in his mind, very possibly in Rome, he could hear, even in a physical way, of people suffering, Christians suffering. And Paul, what is Paul saying? That even through that death, that I wouldn't drop the ball. I wouldn't stop being faithful to my King, Jesus Christ. Paul says this, I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out to my deliverance 
as it is my eager expectation and my hope. This is waiting for something eagerly, just like it says. It is hope-filled expectation, as one commentator says. What comes to mind is what happens early on Christmas morning. (laughs) There's this eager expectation that those presents are going to be opened up. You guys know what it's like. Finally, you get a day off, you get to sleep in a little bit, and at 5 o'clock in the morning, you get an elbow to the cheek, a knee to your knee, waking you up. These kids are so excited. There's this eager expectation that's going to happen. There's one word in the life of our family that makes this come to life, not in Christmas, this is just where we live right now. There's one word to one of our animals, our dog. His name's Hunter. If you say the word word squirrel, (laughs) eager expectation abounds. If I pick up my binoculars, because we got these crazy ground squirrels all over our property. If I pick up my gun or my binoculars, his ear goes up. He's to the fence looking for the closest squirrel to drop. Sorry if that happens to be your favorite animal. But there's this eager expectation, it's going to happen. He can't contain himself. He's at the fence, he's trying to get through, waiting for a squirrel to drop. There's this eager expectation, and what is Paul's eager expectation? His hope, his confidence, as we talk about often, that hope is tied to the word confidence in the New Testament. What is his hope? That I will not at all be put to shame. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I mean, naturally, if you just take this phrase, you're like, well, that's kind of self-centered, Paul. That you wouldn't be ashamed. Isn't that kind of about you? But no, that's not what's consistent with the context here. The word shame means to be let down. And what's Paul saying here? That in no way I have this confidence that God will ever let me down and be put to shame. That he will ever drop me off the side of the cliff. There's this confidence that he wouldn't be put to shame, let down in the community, but all, publicly, but also in front of his mighty God, that God would never let him down. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And when we look at this text, we have to run to this idea that even through trials, even through the trials that Paul is facing here, he had a resolve to keep trusting in God, to persevere through afflictions, knowing that he would not be let down by his almighty God. A gospel-centered life will not just trust in God for eternal salvation. A gospel-centered life will trust God today and tomorrow and the next day till the day you breathe your last breath. That God's got you. Much more that we could talk about that, but I want us to go to this next key idea here, this next point made in verses 20 and 21. By the way, all of these points that we'll see this next two weeks from 19 to 26 all go together. They all flow together. But this particular one, a gospel-centered life, lives with a resolve to magnify Christ. What does the passage say? As it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is Paul's primary ambition in life? It is that 
Jesus Christ would be magnified. Again, what does he say? The first two lines, it's my eager expectation. It's my hope that I will not be put to shame. But he continues the thought that with full courage, with full courage, with boldness and confidence, with fearlessness, the picture is someone confidently speaking in public, especially before a person of high rank, that I will be able to confidently stand on my feet through the power of the Holy Spirit and live, and mag- live for and magnify this Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Now, as always, I love that because very clearly we realize that sanctification isn't just something that happened in the past. It is ongoing. Paul is saying, I want to live for Jesus Christ, not when I checked off and when I came to Christ in, sanctif- in, in justification, he declared me righteous. But now, as in always, past, present, future, I want to magnify Jesus Christ. He says, Christ will be honored in my body. Another word for honored, and some of your translations may actually take on this word, is the word glorified, or some of your translations will actually say the word magnify. It's, a, it's the concept of glorify, magnify, or exalt. I mean, very basically, it's to be made large, to be made big in someone's eyes. It's to cause to be spoken highly of or held in greater esteem, as one lexis, lexicon says. Here's Paul's resolve, as one commentator says, that the prestige of Christ will be advanced in connection with me. What a great question for us to ask ourselves every day. Will the prestige of Christ be advanced in connection with me today? I mean, this word, honored, I love. Because I just love the way it sounds. (laughs) Uh, The Greek word is, and I don't like to bring up these words very often, but it's megaluno. (laughs) All right? You just think something mega. It's big. Luno is brought into your eyes. Mega Luno, I think this is amazing because in my life, I want Jesus Christ to be mega, to be big. I want when people to see me, they not see how big I am. I want them to see how big Jesus Christ is. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul's resolve is that this would happen in his body, this shell, this thing that we carry around till the day we, our heart stops beating, till we breathe our last breath, which, by the way, none of us in this room know when this shell will be set aside. It could happen even before we leave this room. I remember sitting in a service in Detroit, Michigan, and someone collapsed in the middle of the service. You don't know if you're going to be getting through a service. This body, this shell could be set aside, and Paul says Christ will be honored In my body, he'll be made big in my body, whether by life or death. We will talk more of this next week, but basically this. The worst worst that could happen to any of us in this life, to be honest with you, when we talk, is the word death. And Paul says, the worst that could happen to me doesn't matter. That Christ would be honored and magnified, made look big in my death. And then this verse that we studied from the time we were little critters in Awana. For me to live is Christ. And I want to stop there because sometimes we run to the end of that verse. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And a lot of times we focus on that death. What about the first half of the verse? For me to live is Christ. 
If we could just take a a second as we wrap this up this morning and think about this big equal sign. Prior to the equal sign, would you put Paul's name? The equal sign, and then at the end of it, would you put Christ in all capital letters? Paul's life equaled Christ. Now very practically in our lives, I want to make this incredibly practical, all of us in this room. Teens, as you think about your life at school, your friends, your classmates, your sportsmates, how do they perceive your life? All of us in this room. If you would put up with me this equal sign in your life, now at the front of it, would you put your name? What could you fill in the blank with? And we're talking about a very practical way. Would it be fame? Would it be finance? Would it be happiness? Would it be success? Would it be security? Would it be health? Would it be family? Would it be sport? Would it be food? (laughs) For the foodies of us in this room? For me to live as the next meal. Would it be hobby? Hunting season? Fishing season? For me to live equals what? In a very practical way. It's not about me. I look at this passage and I see this word Christ stand out in all of this. This person, Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is this. For me to live is Christ. What if every one of us in this room, every one of us as brothers and sisters at Cross Point Community Church could put our name, put an equal sign, and dynamically say it is Jesus Christ that I live for. Day in, day out. Every decision of my day is influenced by the fact that Jesus Christ has saved my soul. He's won the victory for my eternity when he rose from the dead, but just not for my eternity, for my, for my daily sanctification, the battle that I have with my sin today. For me to live is Christ. I had this discussion with some of my kids this week, and actually uh, two of them started crying. It was on separate accounts. I was talking to my daughter, Eva, and I said, Eva, I probably shouldn't have done this. Probably should have handled it a different way. I was like, you know what? If your dad died, I don't care if you remember me. I want you to remember Jesus Christ. She starts bawling. Dad, I want you to die. You know, <laughs> I want to remember you. I'm like, yeah, you're right. You, you'll remember your dad. But if you remember anything about your dad, would it be that your dad loved Jesus more than anything in this world? To me, that's a comfort, but also an incredible conviction. What do they see every day of my life? Is it Jesus Christ? I think um, I, I was singing a song, actually, in my mind a lot this week. It's actually one that uh, listen, Mike had brought up. Uh, we'd like to introduce this to the congregation, but it's one called Only Jesus. You've heard this song, maybe? I'll just read some of the lyrics. Make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself, dream your dreams, chase your heart, above all else, make a name the world remembers. But all an empty world can sell is empty dreams. I got lost in the light when, I, when it was up to me to make a name the world remembers. But Jesus is the only name to remember. I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus and I have only got one life to live. 
I'll let every second point to him. Only Jesus. There's the second verse. All the kingdoms built, all the trophies won, they will crumble into dust when it's said and done because all that really mattered. Did I leave the truth with the ones I love? Was my life the proof that there's only one whose name will last forever? I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. I, I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him. Only Jesus. What if we embrace that for the rest of the days of our life? A gospel-centered life lives with a resolve to keep trusting in God and lives with a resolve to magnify Christ. How can we summarize this as we close this out this morning? Summarize all of this passage, these three verses that we looked at, bring it down to a key idea. And I would say it would have to be something like this. We must live with a resolve to magnify Christ, to make it very practical in our lives. That word magnify, again, would be like zoom in, <laughs> make bigger. I mean, it, taken within the context, these two verses, I think we could also put this on here. We must live with a resolve to magnif mag magnify Christ as we persevere for Christ. That perseverance is a, is a big deal in the New Testament. As you keep going, but as you persevere, it's not about you. It's not about me. As we get up in the morning, and, and I can look out in the congregation here, I, I don't know exactly what you might be going through. Some of you had a hard time getting up this morning whether emotional, emotionally or physically. I don't know what you're going through, but I, don't, I do know this, that as we persevere through Christ, our goal should be that we make Christ look massive. Taken within the context of the whole chapter, it would be something like this. Because God has radically changed our lives through the gospel, we must live with a resolve to magnify Christ. So what? Okay, we had a good time the last 35, 40 minutes talking about these things. How is this going to make any difference when we walk out this door this, this morning, this afternoon? How is it going to make any difference in our lives this week? And I, if I could propose one question, because this concept of, of magnify is the concept, as I just mentioned, of zooming in. In a very practical way, it's what most of us do with our smartphones every day. When you get a, a picture you want to look closer to, what do you do? You zoom right in. Usually it's to our beautiful faces, right? You want to see how you look on that picture, right? That's just natural. We zoom in. But I want to ask this question as we close out today. When people see the picture of, their, of my life, do they zoom into Jesus? I intentionally put the word my there. This is a possessive pronoun, first person, my and ask yourself, when people look at my life, when they see the picture of my entire life and they zoom in, and the closer they get into my life, do they see that everything I, I do is motivated by my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Everything I talk about, everywhere I go, is consumed with Jesus? That I live a real life that just it's all about the one who saved my soul. Paul says this, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with 
but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. God, that is our prayer this morning. When people zoom into our lives, they see clearly Jesus. We can't help ourselves but talk about how amazing Jesus is. We can't help ourselves but live the life of Jesus. Our reactions, our actions, our demeanor, our attitudes, everything we do is revolving around Jesus. God, I pray that when we think about this concept of gospel-centered life, that we would be able to take that equal sign with our name and be able to dynamically say, Jesus Christ is my life. That's our prayer today.